Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this week's podcast episode, I'm talking with Tatiana Konrativa, the co-founder and CEO of Playpack, a mobile game studio based out of Berlin, Germany. Tatiana has an interesting career in gaming, recently being executive producer at Ethermax and before that having product and producer roles at companies like Vuga and Game Insight. So in this discussion with Tatiana, we talk about getting past the fears of starting your own company, how to succeed in the competitive mobile games industry, and what have been the takeaways from being a founder for almost a year now. But before we go to this discussion, here's a few words from our sponsors. Are you looking to promote your game with content creators? Maybe you've thought about it, but didn't have the time or budget to try it out. Now with Matchmade Express campaigns, you can easily work with creators on sponsored YouTube videos for $500 per campaign. Matchmade scans a pool of 9.2 million creators to find you relevant fits. Your budget gets allocated to several creators and their content will go live in days instead of weeks. You don't need to worry about negotiating fees or handling the logistics of delivery. The result is authentic creative content that drives genuine engagement. Head on over to matchmade.tv to try it out. And don't forget to mention that Elite Game Developers sent you. Before we go on, I'd like to introduce today's sponsor, GameEye. One of the biggest challenges when making a multiplayer game is what do you do if your game gets a sudden surge of players? What happens when a streamer picks up your game and you get a few thousand, even a few million new players? It all comes down to your servers. There are three major problems that can happen if you get more players than you can handle. First, there's an issue of lag. The game will feel slow for some people to play, making it an unfair game. Second, you can run out of servers completely, leading to long queue times and frustrated players. Third, there's the cost. Even if you use a cloud solution, the costs are going to skyrocket if you're using too many servers. That's where GameEye comes in. They host your multiplayer games without a huge price tag, and they automatically spin up new sessions for you only when you need them. They do this by aggregating the world's best server infrastructure and making it all available through a simple API. By using GameMy, you can simply run your live ops knowing that they can spin up game sessions anywhere in the world and make sure that your players are always put in the best locations. You send them the information and GameEye will find you the best location. GameEye, bringing your players closer together. Check them out at GameEye.com. And don't forget to mention that Elite Game Developers sent you. All right, we're live. Hi, Tatiana. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Really nice to be there. Super happy. Uh, Very excited to talk to you. 
yeah, this is going to be interesting to hear the journey that you've embarked on with the founders, how it's been so far. To start off, can you give a short introduction on yourself, how you got into the game industry and to eventually found Playback? Actually, the way I got into the industry was not the most typical. But if you spoke to some people from Eastern Europe, you maybe know that we, we are, at least in my generation, we go to the university very early. I was 17 when I started studying. So by education, I'm actually a pharmacist. I spent five years in the medical school because my parents were all coming from this field. And as a kid, uh, you're being told that, hey, like, you should follow the, this, this type of responsible grown-up career. But I... I like games, so I'm a gamer. I spent tremendous amount of time just uh, playing everything that was available to me as a kid. So that's what I really wanted to do. And luckily, I am from Moscow, from Russia, and that's been a city where the industry was very developed even when I was younger. So when I graduated and through even through my last year, I could see that there is a way that you can do something related to gaming. Uh, like and even get paid for that so it's like hey like living a dream there so i did a little bit of uh, web design i did a little bit of writing articles for websites and then i got a job in qa in a company that was doing localization because everything was translated into russian here and it was so long ago that it was also published on uh, cds and dvds so Mm -hmm. someone had to check the master build before it goes into the store and again, for, for young me, that was a dream job. You play video games, uh, you don't play them as often as you would if you're in development, so not like 100 times, but maybe like 10, and you get paid for it. So that's how I started in the industry. And throughout um, my stay at this company, I had the choice to stay and join the creation department and work more on the publishing side, or I could really look for something where I would develop games, which was then my passion as I realized and I then moved to Nival which I think is famous the most they did at some point Heroes of Mighty Magic 5 but we worked on the um, online MMO called Alex Online so I was a junior game designer there was a huge game spent a team of a few hundreds people they spent five years maybe building it to Myself, it did not correspond so much to my values because it, it's a very long time to make a game, right? You spend really forever on a title, though it's a great thing as a result. And I also saw that it was the year where mobiles become, started becoming like more and more prominent in our lives. So it was not yet what we have now, where everyone really has a phone and spends half of their day uh, doing something in the apps that's, uh, that's literally for everything. But it was already the generation of iPhones. And in Moscow, we have we had a branch of Glue Mobile and I had an opportunity to join them. So I, I did that. I joined them as a producer. It was still iPhone 3G, I think the, the first device that I got to hold and build the game for. We still did premium games, uh, but also it was the first year I think where I heard the term premium not even free-to-play, coming to mobile space. And Glue was one of the companies that invented the how do you do free-to-play. If you remember Gun Bros, that's one of the first uh, free-to-play titles. So what was really cool to see is how this developed, right? And we tried to see 
uh, what it takes to do a free-to-play game for fun, how can you push for it faster, a lot of things that we think as a norm now, like having analytics, for example, in the game we did not have back then, right? So it, it was like really the foundation of the industry. And that was a great experience for me. And I also got the exposure to the to the Western world uh, through that, if you may say it so. Uh, because mm. the Russian market or the Eastern European market as a whole is very contained. It's very, um, you know, broad in talent. We have a lot of game development studios, but still it's, it's kind of thing by itself. And what I felt like what we're trying to do is build a game for a Western market without actually knowing what it is, without being a part of it. And one of the things that was very lacking for me is this diversity of the culture and the team, the way you approach problems. So I wanted to see how would it be well, to be an immigrant and also to join an industry that's still the same, but different because the, it, it meant basically being in a different country. And one of my former colleagues from Google referred me to Vuga in Berlin. So I uh, moved there eight years ago, I think from now, to be product lead. First, I worked... Um, on Jerry Splash, then we did a new game for Vuga. It's called Bubble Island 2, a bubble shooter. And I think it's one of these amazing companies in Germany, in mobile space, then grateful to, to have a chance for um, working for them because it built up this amazing alumni network that still exists. Right, it's like hundreds of people going through it and spending years in the industry. And now, what I see is these people that I know from Google are building like this next uh, generation, of journey, uh, next phase of the games uh, companies all over the globe, really. And I was always jealous. People in Finland, you had at some point, if I may say, older generation of founders coming from digital chocolate. Right. So if, if I speak to someone from Finland, they're like, oh, yeah, I work in the digital chocolate and you guys really know each other. And I was always jealous of that. And now I see the same thing happening in Berlin with the alumni's of, of the bigger companies like Google. And I'm super grateful for that. But the thing is that I really value production speed. I really value ownership. And um, at some point I wanted to do something different. And I also wanted to break a sabbatical because I've been working since I was 22 at this point. So I, I took maybe two months off. And before that, I met guys from Ethermax. That's an Argentinian studio that built Trivia Crack. That's probably the most popular trivia game in, in the world. I think it's 500 million installs that they have now. And they were looking for someone who would set up, uh, together with the general manager, their first European studio in Berlin. So really meaning going to an empty office that only has tables and chairs, figuring out what we're going to do, figuring out how to hire a team, how then to coach people and uh, how to make games. So mm. I, I did that for quite a few years. It was an amazing experience, but of course it's not the same as doing something of my own. And I felt like we am at this point where that's the right step. And I'm also, as I said, we, we had this alumni network at Google and uh, people I worked with before who are now my founders, Rafael Santa Marta, Hendrik Demmer, and uh, later on, even our, our director, Elias Gomez, we all come from Google, right? So we're all available for this adventure at this point. And that's how we started Playpack. We, it was a crazy fast, I think. We started talking about it, aligning ourselves and what we want to do, what values do we see, what kind of games uh, do we see. Uh, 
ourselves building what I'm in general passionate about. And then in, in the spring, we incorporated in May, we raised our first round display ventures. Now in, in, in September, we pushed the first game live and just um, yesterday, this like first cohort of metrics from soft launch came back. So I'm very happy about how fast uh, that has been and where we stand now. Nice, nice. This is your first startup that you founded. Did you have fears about doing this startup? Yeah, that's the first uh, startup. So the very fresh junior uh, first-time entrepreneur. And yeah, of course I did. And you're leaving your high-paid job, your security. You kind of com- you're at least we are committing to bootstrapping maybe or to like working without any salary for a while to trying and failing. So it's, it feels like really a big step. Uh, the, the way I thought about it is the same as I think of my hobby. I do a lot of uh, cycle touring. So I take my bicycle, take the bags, the tent, go somewhere, I don't know, put the bike on the plane, fly to like, Norway or Iceland, or, like somewhere north. And it is a bit scary to do in the beginning, right? You don't know front. But then once you hit the road and start pedaling, it's just like you go. That's very simple. And I felt like this experience of starting a studio was very much the same as, as that feeling. It, it is scary in the beginning to take this first step, but then once you start, you just go and it's very simple. Did you feel that the rest of the team helped you get past these fears or was there some camaraderie about like, we're going to do this as a team? Do you think that helped? <laughs> I think that helped a lot. And uh, the fact that I'm, I'm in this very lucky position where I get to start something with people that I trust and know and have similar passions and beliefs, I think that really is a big support. And we challenge each other a lot every day and we help each other a lot every day. And that, that's not often the case as people yeah. starting studios, that you get this opportunity to work with the team that you really know. Uh, I saw before that when you start something new, it takes time to establish trust, communication, the values. And if you get something from the get-go, that this ginormous leap in the future in a way. Mm. Right? Yeah, you can work together like very quickly uh, to yeah. get to the next level, have some game that has numbers. Can you talk exactly. about like what like what has happened <laughs> now that you actually go online with the first title, right? When we started, I think the passion that we have and the types of games that we want to do is in the casual space. It's not necessary that as a founder, you build the game that you would yourself be an audience for, but I think it's important that you like generally what you're doing. And what I saw as an opportunity is bringing more social features, like really social on the level of how, how you interact with a social network rather than just simple UI, especially in this year where we're almost two years in into this pandemic people are often locked down and separated from their loved ones and i felt what what happened is that social audience got more exposed to how games can help you connect to other players i feel like there is a demand for that that's even higher than it was before the project that would tackle all of that it's very ambitious so when we sat down and just laid out how can we build it it's years of development so the idea, of course, is to start small. And for any game, you have to select the core. And luckily in the casual space, the production time for core gameplay is quite short, I would say, even for a small team. So we looked at the market when we started. The, what we saw is an opportunity in the merch genre. 
we could still be on time with it where the market was not overheated. And it seemed to me like a good fit into what can you build as a core then to build social on top because it's, I think, underserved now in, in this particular part of the market. And that's where we ended up with, right? So the first title that we have is in our genre. It's very like basic core now. And uh, we're now just adding features to tackle the this curve of hey, how does day one translate and then day three, day seven. And then we're going to build up on top of that. So we have like a solid foundation for what we actually see as, as a long-term. Nice, nice. Can you talk about how you picked the genre? Was it like you all had... The previous experience for Volga must have contributed to that. But like, did you have the idea first or did you look at the market, look at a lot of market data, figuring out what other games are doing before you sort of lock down the idea that you want to pursue? Yeah, the first thing we did was sat down and wrote what uh, motivates us, like what we want to do and what we don't want to do. So like, what do you exclude? Uh, for example, we don't want to do hyper casual or like uh, social casinos. And then we had this kind of list of where where we stand, what we think would drive us forward. And then everyone worked a lot on casual games. So that's really where we have the most uh, experience. That was an obvious choice for us, this casual space. The nerd genre is very hot at the moment. It's very hot when it started. But what I see there is really you, you have opportunity for speed and for fast production because it's one of these things that you can build up easily as it doesn't require a lot of levels, for example, content, assets. So uh, it felt like the right choice really to go that way. And I think what we had initially is the vision for a, that's what we want the social to be. And uh, then based on the numbers from the market on what was going on, we picked uh, the core for it. What do you think about the, the state in general of mobile when it comes to this kind of discussion of, of we're going into a red ocean versus a blue ocean with a genre, like you, mm. you just mentioned, merge? Can you talk more about like how can you actually fit another game into a, <laughs> into a genre with so much competition? Yeah, that's crazy. I, I remember a few years ago, I read that every week on Android, you have 20,000 new applications going live. Right. And if you're in gaming once a week, you see a big title from a big developer being published in another time, right? So you have to compete with all of that. And I think it is still possible, right, to enter uh, this red ocean if you're very good. An example, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Royal Match is a very good example there because the guys, they did really well. Like they, they had a lot of knowledge. They did this fantastic execution. They did basically everything right. And then they have a game that's performing very well, where you think it's very hard to break into the puzzle genre in 2021. But the, the way I see it is it's good to look for something new always, right? If you have the, you can still hit good numbers if you if you do something that's proven. But really, uh, if, if you find this needs in people that are not maybe so much tackled by the existing games. And for me, that's, again, how do you bring casual players together? How do you offer them something that's not just UI, but what they perceive as a real thing? And especially mm-hmm. now in this COVID mask, crazy separated world, I see the most opportunity there. The only thing is the, the cost of this opportunity because it's... Uh, yeah. yeah, I think like... Like the audience is 
in different markets uh, are more acceptable for several similar titles like puzzle and merge versus something like a strategy game like clash of clans Mm -hmm. where the audience sort of doesn't want to go through the experience from from zero to somewhere where they are already (laughs) versus in in merge it is more about like enjoying the board again that's a theory that i have i think it it is red ocean for people who have a hard time concentrating on what they need to do to enter the market. I think it's it's not impossible. There's different red oceans for different people. Like your example of Royal Match definitely points out that the Dream Games founders didn't see it as a red ocean and it wasn't a red ocean for them. One question I wanted to ask you about as a first-time founder, I remember my own experience of doing my own company for the first time that it is quite hard to focus on what you need to be doing versus when you could be doing everything because it's your company and there's not that many people. How how do you work so that you can be focused on the essentials and not get distracted? That's a very, very difficult thing to do. Actually, I, (laughs) I struggle with that every day. It's really hard. As you said, when you're a small company, when you're a founder, or when you're very motivated to, to just do it, and then literally you can do anything, everything that you do contributes in the end to the success of your uh, enterprise. And I often find myself in a situation where I will do something. Is it the right thing now or not? So it, it is indeed very hard for me. And maybe I'm a little bit of a bureaucrat, but I do like to write down a few milestones to say that's really what would be the most impact in my opinion right now if we did that, to share that with the team, to sit down, to discuss it, to actually align and uh, uh, challenge that, right? This information has to be really transparent for everyone. I think that's the crucial thing. And if everyone in the team knows that our, it doesn't have to be, you know, an overarching goal of five years, but you know your next few steps, then it's it's actually very easy to, to focus like what does it take to reach this next milestone? What can you do uh, personally to contribute the most to that? Right. And in, in the end, it's this transparency of information and alignment, I think, helps everyone to be more efficient, not only myself. Yeah. Yeah, that's so important. I, I think one thing I learned for the second startup that I did was to actually ask from people's experiences, like what they did when they were finding that mm. what they should be doing, what is the focus that really matters for when you're a startup CEO. And when you did it for the first time, like did you struggle a lot with yeah. this topic? I, yeah, I, I think there's like the, the worst thing that I see first-time founders struggling with, which I also did, was managing cash flow. So I had like raised funding but I wasn't really thinking about like how we should manage the cash besides paying people's salaries. And we were building the game. It was great times. And all of a sudden, the runway was almost <laughs> out, like something like two months left. And oh, it was good. a very, yeah, like a scary experience that really left me in a position that I never want to <laughs> go go into that place again. So awesome. you also learn a lot from these mistakes. So. Yeah, it sounds really scary, like scarred for life. Very much. <laughs> but yeah, a good experience. I don't think I, I sort of like lost myself there too much. Another thing that I wanted to ask you is how do you approach giving the team, instilling them this ownership 
to to make decisions with the game. Since you are the CEO, you cannot be calling the shots, making all the the decisions. Do you do you think about like consensus? Like, what are your um, thoughts there? Yeah, um, I think the best advice that they read on this was in the hot seat right, by uh, Ben Shapiro. Pronouncing his surname correctly, and the the advice is that the CEO can delegate a lot, but also there are a few things that one just must do. And as a CEO, you're obviously the holder of the vision, so that's your responsibility. That everyone knows what is going on, and uh, everyone knows it all the time. So the transparency of of the vision and just keeping aligned with the course of the company, adjusting it to the reality of what is happening. But then the, the the founders, the CEO, we also get to hire the team, right? And we get to establish the culture and the values. And I think it's amazing to be in this position because if you hire truthfully to what you believe in, and in my case, for example, we value ownership. So that's really what drives me and finding the right teammates with this value and enabling them to achieve it results in uh, having the team that you really are aligned with and that you're really trusting in and then i think delegating is very easy right because you really believe in uh, the setup the the team the talent is right for what we're doing and vice versa right the team believes in the company because you have the same values in place and another thing that I found out really drives really drive that transparency of information. Right? So everyone should have access basically to all the data at the, all the time. And when when you build up something, really everyone in the team seems, seems immediately sees the impact on the numbers, right? Whether it's uh, retention or if we're building some something for very long, it's then you can see the cash flow just burned into the project. And that gives the foundation for, for the team to make the right decision. But that's kind of like the big overarching thing. And then I think having the right set of rituals and behaviors and kind of leading by example a little bit in place from the beginning also helps the team then to to try from the get-go what we did with playback we right away have all the information online right so we work remotely and we can easily access every piece design documentation or milestones somewhere we have regular retrospectives even with a small team right you just establish that you look back and whoever is to join us right when we scale they will be right away into this flow of uh, hey this exists right so you, you're part of it you see this behavior there are regular one-on-ones right so the communication i think is crucial even in the small team right? you have to talk because if, if you don't have this force point of talking to someone you might not notice something even if it's like 15 minutes for a coffee in zoom it's still worth it right and i do it every week with everyone in the team. Mm-hmm. and as 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 you grow you also establish like little things that like complement to who you are to your identity Raphael, for example does this video recaps of the progress that we made each week and just post it in slack and it, it's a little thing but it is human to see someone talking about the game someone sharing what we've built and we hope to transmit that also to all the departments and i think as a team member when you come to to the to the team with established rituals established culture and you just observe how people are behaving then you might 
find it easier also to fit, but I'm saying it now as a given. And I also think that it's important from time to time to run also a retro on how the company is at the moment, because as team scales, you might want to revisit how you work. And it's important not to forget about this part as well. Yeah, really good stuff. So you are building the company in Berlin, which I recently visited and the city is getting like more and more interesting every year more and more people from all over the world coming there. What benefits can you take away from running a company in Berlin, which is so diverse from cultures all over the place? Yeah, Berlin is a very interesting place. I don't know if you liked it or hated it. Getting better for me every time <laughs> I go. So I'm, yeah, I think it's yeah. it's cool. It's a really cool place. Yeah, it's this. I think a former mayor of Berlin said that it's a poor but sexy but the truth is it's getting more and more rich year to year. But I feel like people have this instant like love and hate relationship uh, with the city. But the, there there are some, you know, numbers to think of. It's the one of the biggest cities in, in tech in Europe, one of the bigger hubs. It's now three and a half million people living there, which is more than Stockholm or Amsterdam or um, in Helsinki. And one third, I think, of the population has some kind of an immigration immigration background. Right, so you have a big city with lots of unis, even some unis that focus on game design, on building games, and you have a lot of tech in that city. And then, as you said, it's a very diverse place. So, building a company in Berlin, meaning that you have access to all the talent, and you have more, I think, advantage on on finding diverse talent, just because the city gives that to you from from the background that it has, and. It's also growing a lot. When I moved there, it, it was already a big IT hub with many startups coming to be. But every year, it's just more and more. I read that in the last years, out of every five euros that are invested in startups in Germany, three are invested in Berlin. And Germany is different from other countries because you really have a lot of big cities with very developed industries. So it's a big achievement, I think, for what used to be a very poor, poor place. And what I saw also is when I moved here, there were a lot of non-gaming companies, but only a few big gaming startups and non-startups. And in the last year, I saw a lot of smaller studios popping up, partially from this alumni network. And it's very good for our industry because you start slowly getting this network of people who are developing the city as a, as a games capital. And I really value that. I gave you earlier an example of uh, me coming from Google and having this network of people to talk to, to ask for advice. And I feel like it's very, very beneficial for everyone who is a founder or who is just in the industry. And it's curious that you can go grab a cup of coffee and just talk over your experience and share something. But it also is a very competitive place then, right? because find, founding uh, in the city means that you get to compete with all the startups and all the gaming studios and gaming studios also get to compete with normal tech because people sometimes just leave the industry, unfortunately. So it is hard, but I think for me, it's really one of the best places to be as I, as I see it. Yeah, it feels like there's there's so many startups there and you get the pool of people who are comfortable working in startups and it's just growing and growing. So it's yeah, very yeah. cool. You've now been a founder for the last year or so. What has been your key takeaways from this period that you want to share maybe with other founders who will be starting their journey in this 
in, in a moment or two? I think if you, if you think, uh, one, of course, is, it's, it's great. It's amazing. It's a lot of motivation. It feels like the right thing to do, at least for myself. But I, I think once you get it, it's a really positive experience to have done that. I think talking to people is very important. Even before we started, I was surprised how open everyone is when I'm reaching out to them just to ask for advice, to ask for help, to have a chat. Right, and this might nece- not necessarily translate into your experience, the uh, advice that people give you or like the stories that they had. But I think it, it's a lot of information and a lot of good like foundation for everyone who wants to do it. You learn from, from the best, basically, right? And everyone is very open about it. I think what really worked for me and what I would recommend everyone if they could start with the right people i think that contributes a lot to our our speed and to hopefully in the future to success right the first time entrepreneur starting alone is difficult you have to rely on your own feeling for what is the right thing in the moment and when you're in our case like we're free founders which is perfect uh, really there is a lot of support a lot of advice a lot of challenging each other on certain uh, things and I think that allows in the end to, to, to get a better uh, result. Really good ones. We need to do another takeaways from the next two years, maybe in the future. <laughs> to people. Before we go to the final questions, what is a topic that you don't think gets talked about enough in the game industry? Uh, I was actually talking about this to a friend of mine. And he's also been working in, in the industry for many years. And the discussion that we had was about burnout and how the way uh, the industry is affects the talent that work there. We, even myself today, speak a lot about the development speed and pushing for this mindset of trying fast, failing fast. And market changes all the time, so you have to adjust your strategy. And I know people in the industry who worked um, for, I don't know, in the company for 10 years and none of the games that they worked on got to see the light of the day just because the numbers did not, didn't work. And that is very unfortunate because it leads to us losing great people to something that's easier uh, to do. And uh, maybe like working in B2B sometimes is a more definitive for, say for an engineer because you really know hey, you're building a product that's going to be used. And with games, it's often leading for, to, to people leaving the industry. And of course, for myself, starting this, I would be very interested in finding a way to avoid it, right? And finding the right motivation for, for people to stay and always be engaged and always be driven forward. And I wonder, like, what's the right way to do it? And I think we talk a lot about failure, but we don't mm. talk so much about how this failure affects. Yeah. Since, like, I had my burnout a few years ago, I think what I've realized more and more is, like, there's expectation management is important. But even on a higher level, like, thinking about getting rid of all these ambiguous ways that we work, where we don't really know what are the ways of working. We haven't coordinated them together i think that leads to crazy work where it is more about failing fast working fast and not like failing well and also leading to that crazy expectation and then Mm. then you sort of the train wreck happens and yeah 
I've yeah, seen it I'm happen so, so many <laughs> times now. I'm sorry to hear that you also experienced that. Do you think there was, like, knowing what now, do you think there was a way for you to avoid it? Yeah, one thing I've been thinking a lot about is, like, if you if you feel that things aren't in control and you cannot change them, it is better to, to look at what are better opportunities for you to be evolving yourself now and perhaps get back into doing something similar or something that you're passionate about a bit later when you are more evolved as a person. Mm. I, that's one just aspect that I've been thinking about. It's a big topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that that's really a, a lot of stuff that's happening, but I think that we, we don't speak about it enough, right? And maybe yeah. there is a solution that uh, one can find and to, to just help people. Yeah, I think the, you said like the word transparency. I think it's it's also like coming clean with like this is how we want to work removes this ambiguousness that creates mm-hmm. burnout. I think if you are very motivated person who wants to push suddenly that motivation yeah. will be there but you won't have any more energy left yeah, that's so true hey final questions for you tatiana what is your favorite book and why i'll give you uh, professionally i would say the one that's my favorite and then and i think professionally the one book that i really found that impacted me a lot is No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings. That's uh, the book about the culture that Netflix uh, has built uh, in their company. And I did like a lot the, the previous work of Erin Mayer. She wrote Culture Map, which I think is a, kind of a must read for everyone who works in the multicultural teams. But I found is the best quote probably for any founder and any company you would want to think about. And what, what they say is that really there is one rule that everyone has to follow. And this rule is as simple as try to do what's best in the interest of the company, right? Instead of creating this very bureaucratic environment, instead of forcing people to do certain things that's, that are written off on paper, just explain what would benefit the company and what would benefit them in the end, right? And just push for that. And I think that's really what, I would love to try to do somehow. I don't know if I can make it happen or not, but I think that really, really kind of touches me. Personally, the book that I really like, probably no one heard about it. It's called Full Tilt uh, by an Irish writer. Her name is Deborah Murphy. And she is uh, she, she's a journalist. She's also a psychic. This book is a journal of her travel. And what she did is in 1963, she cycled from her home in Ireland to Nepal alone right so like imagine modern world and uh, it's possible but it's difficult to do but we have all the tools all the gear and all the transparency in in the in the borders and she back then just she describes having a gun with six bullets uh, two bags in the back of her bike she just goes through the uh, mountains in the winter through uh, persia through india and then she she does it Right, so for me it was kind of amazing to see what you can achieve on, on the pure human will, and how talk about it in a very simple manner without boasting, but hey, just do it, and um, that because maybe of my hobbies or the way I am, or just admiring uh, women who 
achieve great things. I think that that's the book that affected a lot of the way I think about life. Nice. Very cool. You have a story that shapes you in how you approach your work today. I <laughs> I have many of them, but I think the, the the story that I'm telling everyone is when when you do games as a business, you still do games, right? And I think if, if it's your passion, you always try to get the best result. So what happens often is we get emotionally attached and we invest ourselves in the products that we're building. And we tend to spend a lot of time just, hey, that feels like a right feature for the game. You go for it. And, and long ago, I think it was still, I was still here. We were just building like farming game, adding features to that, trying things. And we thought that's, that's going to result in what people also like. And we thought by like pouring only passion in, into something that we will achieve achieve what we also want as a business but unfortunately what happens in real life it's not necessary you're you're not necessarily the audience of your game even if you like something a lot it's not necessarily gonna work and i think this can lead to a very difficult situation where you've spent so much gave it everything and you just did not you did not show it to people who are gonna play it and nowadays that affected me in the way that I, I just say let's 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 try to show things that are even not finished or you're never up to a level that you want if if you really like building good what i see when when we try to go fast we, we just discard a lot of things we um, give up on um, aesthetics we give up on quality on beauty on features but then you avoid this burnout in a way right and to myself often what we build looks just ugly and unpolished and uh, hey like how can this be but I, I noticed that by bringing all the pieces together and showing it to players and not being afraid of that you can actually get the result really that contradicts your feelings so what you like is not necessarily what people are gonna like and I see it now with the game that we're pushing because we're pushing for a lot of things that feel wrong on, on the let's say, human level as a gamer, but that actually do work numerically. And that's, I think, what affected me the most, to be able to detach from from this passion to say, hey, that's also like a business that we're doing. We're not, at least not yet, maybe when I'm older and richer, I, I can do just indie games for fun, but still, like, as a, as a business, uh, you have to detach and just do it. And then the results that you get might contradict your... Right, that's a really good one. Hey, final question for you. What is the best way for people in the audience to reach out to you if they want to you know, ask advice, whatever? <laughs> you can always reach me at Tatiana at playpack.games or just talk me on LinkedIn. Like, unfortunately, my surname is word to type, but I guess there will be... A... Yeah, cool. Hey, this was so good. Really interesting chat. Um, I wish you and the team the best and... Uh, hopefully the game becomes a huge hit and we'll hear <laughs> more. <you> so <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. Take care, Tatiana. Bye-bye. If you like our content, please hit follow or subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. 
And in the meantime, please go and check out our website at EliteGameDevelopers.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter on what's happening in gaming startups. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye.